Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. It remains to be seen how the dramatic recapture of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman will shift the dynamics of the Mexican drug cartels. Will he, as before, continue to run his organization from behind bars, or will the Sinaloa cartel he masterminded splinter or collapse? This is Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. One thing that is certain is that El Chapo's rise to dominance was made possible in part by the DEA's relentless pursuit of his chief rivals, the Ariano Felix brothers, who are now all dead or in jail, even as some of those who have spent careers trying to bring them to justice wonder whether it was worth the effort and expense it took to destroy the cartel's top leadership. David Epstein is a reporter for ProPublica. His article, How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel, appears in the current issue of the Atlantic magazine. David, welcome to Think. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you, I have never come across a piece of long-form journalism that reads more like a movie treatment than this one. This story is so incredibly dramatic. Yeah, it it was, uh, I mean, it it really felt that same way to me. It kind of starts with the capture on the high seas of uh, a drug lord, you know, while his yacht is chasing a marlin. and, And yeah, it was very very cinematic, except for, I guess, the maybe the happy ending part. <laughs> the El Chapo story has been everywhere since last week. I hadn't realized how his operations were tangled up so tightly with those of the Ariano Felix organization, which is sometimes called the AFO. But early on, when the real kingpins were the Colombians like Pablo Escobar, El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel and the AFO coexisted reasonably well. That's right. I mean, so it, Pablo Escobar... Um, you know, through the 80s, really controlled the cocaine trade. And Colombia in general produced the cocaine. They moved most of it. They would kind of hand it off to border smugglers in Mexico, like Chapo or the Ariano Felix brothers, who would take it across the border, and then it would go back into the hands of the Colombian distribution networks. And what happened was, basically, when if people have watched Narcos, there's there's an episode where Pablo Escobar, in an attempt to get rid of a Colombian presidential candidate orchestrates the suitcase bombing of an airliner. And what they don't show very much in that episode is that one of the reasons that was a huge mistake for him was that there were two Americans on board. Hmm. And he instantly became uh, a major target of our military. And that ended up bringing so much heat to Colombia that Colombians kind of backed away from part of the drug trade and became more producers who were handing the product off to Mexico and saying, okay, now you guys deal with the rest of it, basically. And that led to this huge proliferation of trafficking along the border and to the rise of um, Chapo and the Ariano Felix brothers, who really really took over uh, the most important parts of the drug trade from Pablo Escobar in Colombia. The other thing that's really interesting is that um, by making it so much harder to smuggle cocaine uh, into Florida by sea routes, the DEA inadvertently lit the fuse in Mexico. That's right. They identified, in in trying to stop the Colombian trade, they identified this kind of choke point, like a 90-mile choke point um, that they they blockaded, uh, made a naval blockade. And that, that, you know, was like squeezing one end of a balloon and the air goes everywhere else. And pretty much then trafficking uh, spidered along the entire U.S.-Mexico border where it is now. So um, they kind of solved one problem and uh, ended up with a, one that was much, much harder to contain. So give us a little sketch of the Ariano brothers who uh, ran the Ariano Felix cartel. Tell us a little bit about the family. So the family uh, was um, made up of seven brothers and uh, three sisters, and but primarily 
five brothers were involved in the cartel. And their father uh, was kind of a small – he would smuggle luxury goods from the United States, air conditioners, televisions to drug traffickers in Mexico. Um, and in starting in the mid-'80s, the brothers themselves started kind of throwing parties for some of these traffickers and starting to get involved in some low-level things and then sort of moved up toward the Tijuana area and started becoming kind of enforcement for what's called the Tijuana Corridor, which is basically the geographical area leading up to the crossing into California. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in that vacuum left by by Escobar, basically, they and Chapo took over the Mexican border, and, and these brothers – um, became sort of criminal masterminds led by one named Benjamin, who was kind of the, the CEO mastermind. His uh, lead enforcer was his brother, Ramon, who was maybe the most violent man in the world at the time. He, he was um, sort of known for helping invent things like what the cartel card called pozole, which is a, a word for a traditional Spanish soup, but which they took to mean um, dissolving bodies in acid or lye so they could then pour them down the drain and get rid of high-profile victims. And the two other brothers that were most involved were Eduardo, who um, was uh, kind of a little quieter of an advisor and also a doctor, and then Javier, the younger brother, who was sort of the the Michael Corleone figure, who went away to business school and was pulled back into the family business and and eventually came to lead it. At the height of their powers, um, the Arianos were outfitted like bond victims, complete with like a diamond skull belt buckle and cars that shot oil slicks at people in pursuit or delivered electric shocks to people who tried to touch them. Yeah, that was, and specifically, Ramon would, you know, in fact, copy things that he would see in in movies. And he had a, his car was wired to electrocute people if they touched it, and he, it could release an oil slick if if people were chasing him, you know, and gold plated guns and uh, diamond encrusted belt buckles of skeletons with emeralds in the eyes and all those sorts of things, and and so they were, um, you know, to varying degrees. Living money was basically limitless for them for a while, and, and and frankly, in many times when we were chasing them, they were vacationing in Las Vegas and in Santa Monica and in New York and in uh, Washington D.C. and Reno and things like that. So they were they were living the life. Um, I suppose it goes without saying that they were horrendously, creatively, unapologetically violent. They didn't just kill those they viewed as their enemies, but they tortured them and mutilated them beyond simply the need to mutilate them to get rid of the bodies. That's right. They, I think, you know, to put it kind of in corporate terms, I think they saw their competitive advantage as unhinged violence, basically, Um, especially Ramon, who would resort to, to violence first. You know, I know Chapo Guzman likes to describe himself as a businessman first who resorts to violence if he has to. And at least that's more true than than was the case of Ramon. I mean, Ramon would shoot a police officer for pulling him over, you know, in a traffic stop, um, and and started would display mutilated bodies publicly with messages on them, and and uh, one of his other sort of euphemisms was carne asada or grilled beef, which is the act of making a fire, a bonfire with car tires and throwing bodies on it to incinerate them, and and. Supposedly, he would, um, you know, grill his dinner over that. So I think he did a lot of these things to build the legend of their their violence, and it, and it worked extremely well. As a journalist wired to be skeptical, David, I have to ask: when you hear these things, you know, some of them could be mythology, and some of them may be truth. How do you track down? You know, how do you know what to believe about a criminal organization like this? It depends. I mean, I gathered a lot of accounts from people who were in the criminal organization themselves. For obvious reasons, some of them weren't identified. Um, 
in the story, but I, I had a lot of accounts from people who were in the cartel and doing some of these things. And obviously, a lot of those accounts are consistent. Um, sometimes there are records where you get these accounts. Sometimes there are records of things like um, f- the finding of teeth from someone who was dissolved and poured mm-hmm. down the drain. So sometimes they'll find remnants of these bodies or in these uh, tire fires. So I think primar- it started with getting many very consistent accounts in many cases from people who were doing these things and then who became government informants and really had no reason to lie about it and were very consistent, um, backing those up with any kind of records I could get um, and and going about it that way. And so the, the, the one part of that that I couldn't verify in a very, very solid – I mean, in, in some cases I had pictures of these things mm. too um, in action, which, you know, we didn't print for kind of obvious reasons, right. I guess. Um, but whether or not Ramon actually grilled his dinner over the carne asada fires, I was not able to verify. So that could have been something that he wanted to add to his legend. Um, but, but I mean, I had actually visual proof of, of the rest of it. Does it start to freak you out when you're reporting on people who, you know, will, will kill for very little reason, if any reason at all? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the... Yeah, I mean, my, my previous job, you know, I was at Sports Illustrated, and obviously it's like people get upset when you do something investigative, but the repercussions aren't quite the same. Right. Um, and it it was, and, and I think I think a lot of cartels could have been more successful if they avoided certain Escobar-sized mistakes like bombing a plane or like committing a very public murder of like American law enforcement. And so on one hand, I think they tend to realize that high-profile murders are really not worth their weight when a high-profile murder of someone who's not involved in the drug trade at all. At the same time, you know, you're around and talking to people who have done a lot of really bad things, who might be impulsive, who might be really young and wanting to prove themselves, and who have grenades and guns and, and all sorts of things like that. And so, um, yeah, it is. I, I was actually thinking about that, not to not to get on a tangent, but when I was reading the, this very much-discussed Sean Penn right. interview... Um, with El Chapo that, um, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about that piece. At the same time, I I was thinking about my own fear when I was dealing with some of these characters. And the one thing I'll say for him is I'm he, he certainly must have weathered his fear somewhat because even though it would be ridiculous for them to kill Sean Penn, like, you're dealing with people who might not follow your same logic and on their turf. Right. And they didn't seem to really fully understand how famous Sean Penn was in this country. They They, they weren't fans. Right, right. And I don't. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. All right, I'm going to take a quick break here. Um, we're speaking this hour with reporter David Epstein of ProPublica. His article, How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel and How This Helped Give Rise to the Criminal Empire of Chapo Guzman, appears in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. We'll resume our conversation with David in a few minutes. And if you'd like to join it, you can call 1-800-933-5372. We will be back in just two minutes with David Epstein talking more about his article about DE agents taking down Mexico's most vicious drug cartel. Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. Spring registration is now open with courses in art, architecture, literature, and languages, as well as professional certificates and test preparation. Registration online at smu.edu CAPE. 
This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with ProPublica reporter David Epstein. The article we're talking about today appears in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. It's called How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel. You can join our conversation at 1-800-933-5372 or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Okay, David, I do want to talk for just a minute here about um, this. what's almost more sensational than the recapture of El Chapo Guzman is this odd story of the actor Sean Penn and this um, Mexican soap opera star going down and visiting in person with El Chapo and and getting um, what amounted to uh, an interview with him. Uh, What were your impressions of of what came out of that meeting and, and what was left unasked by Sean Penn in your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the article, you know, was very much, most of it was kind of the color of, I'm Sean Penn, I'm going to meet this figure that people don't know much about, and this kind of essayistic writing about his impressions of him as a human. Um, you know, and, and in a way, I think some of the sort of criticism of it was that it was almost a little bit like a sort of superficial Chapo Guzman press release in the sense that it was, it seemed like Sean Penn's um, was humanizing him a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, mm-hmm. saying here's a guy who, who came from a place with uh, not a lot of economic epp- opportunity and here we are north of the border consuming all these drugs and so shouldn't we think about our own role in it? And and, and while I think, you know, all those things are valid and true um, and that and that it is a different experience when you meet any person in person and have to interview them and see that they're a human being before you write about them. Um, to interview a drug lord and have him answer your questions really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a lot of the truth if you don't know a lot of the context of um, drug trafficking and cartels in general. And so I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge. I mean, I don't think Sean Penn's kind of like tricking anybody with this. Like it seemed like everything was out on its face. So I don't think it's changing any minds about, a uh, you know, someone who's involved in many, 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 many murders. It's mostly just a color essay kind of. Although on one hand, I do think maybe it's also a bit of a missed opportunity to have done some reporting prep uh, around it and learn more context of, of the rise of Chapo and the situation now where Sinaloa is more powerful than any Mexican cartel has ever been and is firmly entrenched in U.S. cities, uh, particularly those ones where the homicide rates have suddenly taken a big spike. So I just think there was a lot um, more that could have been done. It ended up being sort of a a kind of oddly written color travelogue. Do you think it's likely that El Chapo Guzman thinks of himself as a good person the way he portrays himself to Sean Penn? You know, I, I think – let me tell just a quick anecdote when, I, when you ask that uh-huh. because when I was dealing with some of the former cartel members, one one guy in particular I was talking to was a former cartel lieutenant who actually was an American guy who, who then went to Mexico, um, had a boat that he used for smuggling. And he told me that they would load up the boat. You know, he was telling me like, hey, you know, don't – I don't know why you guys vacation in Mexico. Like you'll probably be fine but you come running down the wrong beachfront while we're loading a boat and like nobody will see you again. And so we're making this small talk. He's saying we would load the boat with heroin and cocaine and marijuana and people. So they'd traffic people. Hmm. But he said the one thing that doesn't come on my boat, no meth because that really messes people up. Like, <laughs> you see a meth addict and I'm kind of like you're trafficking people and you have an enforcement crew of hitmen. And you draw the line at bringing meth. Hmm. 
And so the kind of ability to split one's brain into pieces um, really amazed me. And normally I would say I, I, Chapo obviously knows he's, he's been involved in the deaths of a lot of people. But the ability of, of some of these individuals to seemingly section that off in their brain um, was remarkable to me. So, so I have no idea how to inhabit a mind like that. So once there was bad blood between Sinaloa, El Chapo's cartel, and the AFO, the Ariano Felix brothers, um, there was really no effort spared in either side trying to kill the other. How did it happen that they, other than simply rivalry for territory, how did it happen that they decided they absolutely hated one another? Yeah, part of it actually started with a little bit with a personal beef where um, one of Chapo Guzman's um, friends, good friends, the Arianos felt that he he might have harassed their sister. Possibly, they they felt like he might have sexually assaulted her, basically, and they wanted some revenge. But they didn't really have enough juice to go around murdering people at the time. And so, when they did get that in 1989, Ramon took revenge by by just shooting in you know in, in front of everybody in front of a club, Chapo's friend, and then you know to send a message went on and murdered a number of that guy's family members who had nothing to do with anything. And so they had this sort of personal beef. And on top of that, the Arianos then said, okay, this Tijuana corridor from here to 100 miles to the east, this border, this is ours. Like, come here and you're dead. And so that sort of ended the cooperation. So they had both a personal beef and a territorial beef, even though they didn't need to. There was plenty to go around. And so then started this succession of attempting to uh, kill one another, starting with Chapo sending men dressed as policemen into a club where some of the Ariano brothers were you know, shooting up the club, and there was this sort of daring escape by the Arianos, and then they tried to get him back um, in an event that changed the course of cartel yeah. and enforcement history um, when they when they tried to assassinate Chapo and, and um, accidentally killed the second highest-ranking Catholic official in broad daylight in front of the international airport in Guadalajara, and that, that really changed everything. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, even in a country as as often venal and corrupt as Mexico in terms of law enforcement, that can't be ignored. No, that was, you know, I think that was a moment where even the the cartels for some impoverished Mexicans, for many impoverished Mexicans, were um, folklore heroes in a lot of ways, you know, sort of a, almost viewed as a rebellion to a corrupt administration and an overbearing United States. And when that happened, when in broad daylight they, they killed the cardinal, um, six other people, and then boarded the plane that they were leaving on. That's the part that I can't um, even imagine, that this huge shooting has happened and somehow no one thinks to stop these sweaty, panting guys who were trying to get on at the last minute. Yeah, not only that, actually, I got, you know, as I was condensing and taking out some detail, like a couple of the guys were allowed on the plane with, with boarding passes written in pen. Um, you know, so obviously something was wrong and everyone knew something was wrong and they and they get away. Um, and that that like you said, could not be ignored. I mean, even people who were helping them cover up other things they were doing in law enforcement um, suddenly didn't have the same kind of ability to cover things up for them. And they instantly, the Ariano Felix organization, instantly became sort of the black sheep of the cartel world where even other traffickers didn't want anything to do with them suddenly. Help us understand the kind of corruption that exists among law enforcement officials in Mexico. People may have heard this expression, plato, plomo, silver, or lead. I, I don't mean to justify corruption, but there really is no other choice in some cases. That was, 
Yeah, yeah. The silver lead, of course, meaning take the bribe or take the bullet. Right. And I did find myself wondering how one decides to become a police officer, for example, um, in Mexico, because, you know, I, I even talked to um, someone who was a police officer who was really working to not be corrupted. And, and that was the, cho- you know, and then it was, okay, well, we're not just going to kill you. We're going to kill family members. So eventually um, had to start helping. So it's, it's like if you're in the wrong spot, there's there's not much you can do. And and the the Ariano Felix organization was more sophisticated in their policing tactics. You know, the way they would use their radios and their training. They brought there was a guy that some of the enforcement crew would refer to as the terrorist because he was a Middle Eastern man who who they said had trained terrorists, you know, and so they were having training the police didn't even have. Um, and so when I would talk to agents who worked on this case, they would usually say for the most part, it was not a question of if, but when um, Mexican, their Mexican counterparts would be corrupted. And when they weren't, in some cases, uh, like one of the men I write about in the story, he ends up having his head crushed in a pneumatic press because he turns out, you know, he, he doesn't go over to that side. So it's, boy, I mean, there are some really courageous people who try to stick with it. But I think for the most part, a lot of them end up making understandable decisions for self-preservation. You tell the story through the lens of two DEA agents who spent years trying to track the Ariano brothers. Why did the agency focus, um, not exclusively certainly, but so many resources on the AFO? A major part of it was um, the killing of the Cardinal. So the the case was officially opened in 1992 by um, a special agent named Jack Robertson, who interestingly went on to get into sports anti-doping and help take down Lance Armstrong um, much when he got out of the cartel business. But so he he opened the case in 1992 just because he was hearing um, the Ariano name more along the border, um, south of San Diego, and noticed that, you know, one of his informants was scared to even say the name. And so he said, well, you know, these these guys must be players. Let's open a case. And his boss, who went on to become the head of the DEA, said, yeah, we should be able to wrap this up in six months, not realizing how powerful they were. And then when the cardinal killing happens, it becomes a national priority, right? Because everyone decides that this is a kind of a clear and present danger on both sides of the border. And suddenly there's a whole task force formed, including FBI, DEA, um, U.S. Marshals, Department of Justice, you know, other organizations. And it becomes the national priority case to take down these this incredibly violent cartel who is now really world famous. Um, And it went on for about 20 years instead of six months. And not surprisingly, perhaps, El Chapo's uh, attorney, probably, surely with the blessing of El Chapo, cooperated with the DEA to try to take down the the Ariana brother. That's right. So his his attorney and confidant, who was kind of a liaison you know, because Chapo was running a big business, so they would liaise with other businesses uh, when they needed things done, whether it was moving money or, you know, or dealing with judges to get people out of jail. So this was a very sophisticated individual, um, you know, who would show up to, to meetings with the DEA in, in tailored suits with $1,000 pens and things like that. Um, and most informants, when they show up to the DEA, of course, are screwing their bosses, right? They're informing on an operation they've been involved in. But in this case, he would come with the open blessing of Chapo Guzman giving information um, that both would would sometimes lead to, you know, preempting a murder of Mexican officials, but also um, that that led the DEA to target Chapo's rivals. 
um, and it's useful information, and agents take information wherever they can get it. You know, it's not coming from information about drug cartels usually isn't coming from, like, the church choir. <laughs> right. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of the agents ex- sort of in retrospect um, wondered if there should have been someone taking sort of the broader systemic view of what would happen when they did some of Chapo's bidding and hmm. took out his rivals. And what did happen is that he expanded into that space, and the Sinaloa cartel, with or without Chapo Guzman now, um, is the the most powerful cartel we've ever had along the border. David Epstein is my guest. He's a reporter for ProPublica. His article, How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel and How This Helped Give Rise to the Criminal Empire of Chapo Guzman, appears in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. We'll talk more with David Epstein after this break. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. Back in two minutes with David Epstein. Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. Spring registration is now open with courses in art, architecture, literature, and languages, as well as professional certificates and test preparation. Registration online at smu.edu CAPE. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with journalist David Epstein of ProPublica. His article, How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel, appears in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. David, you write about this extraordinary moment when Ramon Ariano, this incredibly dangerous, violent man, is hiding out in Southern California ends up walking into a TV segment being shot for David Letterman. It is, it is just stranger than fiction. T- tell us what happened. Yeah, so this was after the Ariano brothers accidentally uh, killed the cardinal. In Mexico, they scattered, um, and Ramon went to Santa Monica to hang out and have a good time. And he um, had dyed his hair blonde, and he's hanging out by what used to be called Man's Chinese Theater, um, and in Hollywood and just sort of he's there with he, he's he's gotten very big. He's, he's gained a lot of weight. He has no undershirt and he's wearing a Michael Jordan Bulls jersey and sunglasses. And he gets approached for a man on the street segment, which if people remember from David Letterman, there was a, a guy in New York who owns a deli around the corner from the Letterman show named Rupert G. And Letterman would use him. He'd give Rupert an earpiece and then stand in a car and tell him what to say to strangers, you know, and they would film the the funny reactions and then cut it into a segment. And Rupert approached Ramon, um, not, you know, not knowing who he was, not knowing that he uh, generally had a gun in the bag that was slung over his shoulder. And he he, point, he starts pointing to Ramon and saying, hey, look, everybody, it's it's Michael Jordan, you know, because that's what David Letterman's telling him in his earpiece. Right. And then he starts trying to give him showgirls tickets and all these kinds of things like that. And, uh, you know, he's lucky that there were a lot of other people around. But the DEA also used this to get a contemporary uh, picture of Ramon because one of their informants told them, like, by the way, Ramon got um, accidentally on the Letterman show. And part of the segment actually ran on the show showing Ramon. Yeah. And you can still find this. Of course, after reading your piece, I raced to see this on the Internet. And it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Only a only a tiny little short bit um, of it. Yeah. 
Only a short bit of the, the segment with Ramon actually gets cut in where Rupert's yelling, hey, look, it's Michael Jordan. And then there's there are people laughing. Yeah, I think Late- it's like after two minutes of the YouTube video. Later, there are these incredibly expensive, complicated operations meant to capture him on vacation in a couple of different places. Yeah, he became, you know, he ultimately ended up on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And one of the vacations, they, uh, the DEA learned that he usually vacationed in Tahoe for New Year's. Um, his wife and his daughter was going to a very fancy private school in Hollywood. And they were able to, to get some intel kind of from someone who worked at the school saying that they were going to Tahoe for New Year's. And so... The DA expects Ramon will meet them there, and they go and they they rent a whole bunch of cabins next to them. They wire up the cabins, you know. They rush out moments before, um, before the family gets there, and Ramon's not there, but the rest of the family is. And then when they end up going, you know, so they're they're on a ski trip, and there's like, you know, a cadre of DEA agents that are like following them down the mountain while they're skiing, and then they're driving to Caesars for New Year's, and there's, you know, again this like small army of DEA agents following them to. To Caesars and and Ramon's daughter has her suitcase and her pillow, and so I say they've got skeleton keys for every uh, room in the hotel connected to the casino. They're watching all the surveillance videos, and they wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and eventually the family gets up and leaves, and Ramon never shows. and And all they saw after that was his wife Evangelina goes and picks up a house phone in the casino and is seen on the surveillance video. Um, seeming to kind of gesticulate in frustration at someone on the other line, and, and Ramon never shows up, so it just turns out to be a wash. Um, and Ramon finally ends up being killed in what started as a routine traffic stop, or appears to have started that way. Yeah, so he, so the DA never did get to him, but he was, uh, he was given a tip about where to find um, Chapo Guzman's right-hand man, Mayo Zambada, who, who is not as famous as Chapo, but just as important. Um, and and presumably now in charge of the Sinaloa cartel. And it's unclear whether he was given bad information um, about where to go to Mazatlan to try to find Mayo Zambada out during carnival time or uh, this was the routine traffic stop. But one way or another, he and his men are patrolling, um, looking for this one of their rivals, and they're pulled over, and it escalates into a firefight. And Ramon had... um, fake credentials as a federal law enforcement officer. So he and the actual uh, officer are kind of yelling their credentials at one another. And they both end up shooting one another from basically an arm's length range. We don't know exactly what happened, but it seems that um, Ramon might have been kind of complying and getting on his knees and tried to tried to surprise the officer and shoot upward because he shoots the guy in the heart and the, and one bullet from the officer goes through Ramon's head. And so they end up dead, like, eight inches away from one another. Um, and, yeah, so the, the DEA never got to him. Ultimately, the DEA's goal was to have the Ariano brothers dead or in custody. Um, of course, they gave up a lot of lower-level people to make this happen. This did happen, and yet, poignantly, you know, the agents most uh, involved in the case have this gnawing sense that maybe their victory is hollow. Yeah, there were, and there were a number of reasons they felt that way. I think they were very proud of kind of the, the things they did on a local level. At the same time, they recognized that it cleared the way for Chapo. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they thought the, you know, early on when they thought the case would be short, um, 
it made a lot of sense to make deals with, you know, sometimes drug traffickers and murderers that gave them shorter or no prison sentences, and in many cases gave them a lot of money. You know, there were tens of millions of dollars paid to drug traffickers and murderers for information. Um, you know, in, some, in, in one case, a guy who became a government informant uh, was shot the next day after becoming an informant and went on workers' comp, which I didn't even know that, you know, drug trafficker informants could, could get. I think it's hard for most American workers to get. Um, and But when this went on for 20 years, it ended up that in a, they end up making deals with an enormous number of people to get to the Ariano brothers. I mean, 100 people were relocated to the United States. Um, and some people were given millions of dollars for, for information. Uh, you know, some people were given, um, were helped find jobs in the United States who'd been drug traffickers. Some of them ended up working at federal prisons or in the, uh, you know, other, other U.S. public offices. And then the two brothers, the three brothers that ended up in jail, um, they're all going to, to get out alive, assuming they, they live a normal lifespan. I mean, Eduardo is going to get out in, I think, about six years or so. Hmm. He got 15 years, um, and he'll serve probably 85% of that. Um, you know, so he really, he, he got less than what some people get for. There, there is, I mentioned in the piece, in 1991, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a life sentence for a man in Michigan who was an Air Force veteran who was caught with, you know, like a pound of cocaine. The Arianos were shipping 40,000 pounds of cocaine every month to just their biggest client in California. And they made all these trades, all these little deals with devils that they felt would be worthwhile if they really had some justice in the end. And I think they felt like they, the trade-offs ultimately weren't worth it for what they got in the end. And all this dirty, blood-soaked money that the Arianos earned, if that's the right word, is still out there. That hasn't been recovered by the DEA. Not a lot of it. So they've recovered a little bit, but even some of it that has been forfeited, like by Javier Arellano, um, I was told both by people who are involved with the cartel and, and DEA agents that some of it is still there. Like in like we could go drive to Tijuana right now and pick up several million dollars under the floor of a house um, that you know that I could guide us to, and that just some government agencies kind of got into. Um, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess a pissing match about who was going to recover it. And so it's still sitting there, um, which is kind of disconcerting. And as for El Chapo, I know that, you know, his his repeated escapes ultimately became uh, embarrassing for the Mexican federal government. Do you think, though, that um, they are motivated this time to keep him in prison at least long enough to allow for extradition to the U.S., which is also a little bit politically unsavory for the Mexicans? I I do I think, um, I think the risk of another kind of embarrassment like that is going to lead them to kind of expedite the the extradition, which has uh, sometimes in the past taken a while. So extradition on drug charges was actually uh, initially allowed at all because of the Ariano Felix organization. It was you know, sort of reinstated by the Mexican Supreme Court to allow this lieutenant in the Ariano Felix organization to be extradited on drug charges. And then a couple other members of the organization were as well. But it took years to do that. And I think um, they I think they don't want all of the difficulties that come with keeping Chapo Guzman in Mexico anymore. So I expect um, him to be be taking a trip north pretty soon, and he's uh, he's indicted in an, in a number of U.S. cities. So I think it'll be we don't know where he what jurisdiction he might end up in. 
David Epstein is a reporter for ProPublica. His article, How DEA Agents Took Down Mexico's Most Vicious Drug Cartel, appears in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. David, it's been really interesting to talk with you. Thank you for making this time for us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.